Tonight, we're privileged to have with us one of our very own, he and his wife, Dr. Alan Ehler and his wife, Kira, very much vitally connected to our church, attending, involved in ministry. He is the dean of the School of Religion at Southeastern University, great leadership there at our university, and so he's going to be speaking tonight. We're going to go ahead and pray for him. We believe that he has a word from the Lord for all of us here tonight. Amen. Well, thank you, orchestra, and thank you, Pastor Andy and the worship team and all of you here. It's always a huge honor to be able to share God's Word here at Victory. Uh, of course, we always want the circumstances to be different. We've been praying for Pastor Wayne here and I have every day, and, and good to hear towards the end of the week, a good report on his, his eyes recovering, heading in the right direction, but of course, we want to pray for total and complete healing as, as quickly as possible. Uh, and, but Pastor Dan told me to be on standby for tonight, and so I, it was a very busy week, lots of stuff going on in the university. We have our master's cohort pastors from all over the country come in and for this is their first week and I teach them and spend most of the rest of the week with them. One of the, the people who serve with me at Southeastern, he and his wife lost a baby. We were at the hospital with them till midnight. So it's been a, been a busy week. So I didn't have time to write a new message, but really in prayer felt led to do something that I've done a lot of study on over the last couple of years. And it just works out. I'd say ironically, but maybe sovereignly is a better word. If you happen to be at Lakeside Village with us, this morning, we're going to kind of pick up where Pastor Jeff left off in the series called Game Plan, talking about finding God's will for your life and your purpose and all those details. But it also happens to fall the very next passage after what Dr. Chris Owen taught this morning, got to listen to the live feed in 2 Kings chapter 6 on into chapter 7. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. It'll be a while till we get into the scripture, but we're going to dig, we're going to summarize a chapter and a half tonight. And of course, I want to just say a huge thank you to my wife, Kira, for coming with me tonight. A week from tomorrow, it will be 30 years. We're 20 years behind Pastor Wayne and Sharon, but uh, there's nothing like spending your life and being madly in love with your best friend. And, and there's good evidence that God is gracious, that somebody like me gets to spend my life with somebody like her. Just spend five minutes with her, you'll know what I'm talking about. But it's great. But how many of you tonight would say you've got problems? You may not be willing to raise your hand. Okay, a few of you got your hands high. How many of you have ever had a problem one time or another? Uh, yeah, of course, it's part of the human experience. And some of those problems are just annoyances, kind of like the red light that comes on in your car, your check engine light or whatever. You take it to the dealership. They plug it in the computer. I can't figure out what's going on. And you got to go drive down the road, and you're always embarrassed because somebody in the car going, hey, your check engine light's on. What's going on there? And you're like, well, I took it in, but I don't know. And you get frustrated. Or how about that person in the next cubicle from yours at works who listens to that obnoxious music that you absolutely can't stand? Or, or those annoying habits of your new partner, the first six months of marriage, getting used to one another. I mean, we, we have problems. They, they happen. But sometimes they get to be big problems. And as I've been thinking back on Kira's and my marriage, we were married. I was in active duty. I was a civil engineer before I got into, the air, into ministry, and the Air Force paid my way through college. And I served for seven and a half years as an officer, and my first assignment was at Nellis Air Force Base right outside the city of Las Vegas, Nevada. I grew up just north of Denver, Colorado. My dad was a farmer, and he would always have pickups and things, and, and he bought all of his tractors from the international dealer. It used to be, now it's called Case International, and, and they used to make four-wheel drives that were not pretty, 
but they were very functional. And he bought a pickup when I was in junior high, and then when I got my license, it got to be my truck to drive. And again, it was not a pretty truck, but that thing could climb. And living in Colorado, there was nothing like going up, seeing some old mining camp, some old mine, and climbing the mountain at 40 degrees, just chug, 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 watching this thing go up. So it was a great tool to have when I got to Las Vegas. Only problem in Las Vegas is everything is sandy. And if you ever go to the city of Las Vegas, it's surrounded in the mountain valley with mountains on three sides of it. And on the east side of the mountain, I think we got a picture here, is, is a mountain that is officially on the map called Frenchman Mountain, but everybody in Las Vegas calls it Sunrise Mountain. And 2,000 feet straight up from the valley, there it is, it shoots up right there. Absolutely no trees there except a, some cactus and some stuff like that, but it, I mean, it shoots straight up. And I remember just seeing, man, I'd love to take my truck up that mountain. And so one time, even before we got married, I tried to do it, but the road was so steep that my sort of snooth road tires couldn't do it. So I saved up my money, and I got some knobby retreads, you know, those big fat tires with the big old knobs on it, and man, I could go anywhere with that truck. It was, it was a lot of fun, as long as it didn't break down, as long as they didn't do something stupid. But the uh, first guy I ever led to the Lord when I was in college wound up taking a job with McDonnell Douglas in Long Beach, California. That's about a four-hour drive, so a couple times a year, we'd go back and forth. We'd go down there, Kira and I'd go down, visit him, or he'd come up and visit us. And, and one time he brought three of his coworker friends with him. And we were looking for something to do. It was Saturday, and, and they wanted to do some shooting. They had some pistols and stuff, and I, they saw the knobby tires in my truck. They go, can we go four-wheeling? And I go, yeah. You know, I've always wanted to climb Sunrise Mountain. Let's go do that. I haven't tried it out since I've got the good tires, so let's go do it. So we crammed in, four of us, in the front of a truck. Not, not exactly wisdom. Can't say I recommend that. But we went out there, and sure enough, that first hill where I'd gotten slowed up, my t- tires spun out in the smooth tires, that thing just climbed, climbed climb climb and you go over the top and there is there's a saddle and you come on the other side and you drop another 300 feet and then there's the steepest part and then you get up there and you're doing this back and forth back and forth back and forth and I think we got a picture of the, the road here that's at the summit that's not that's once you're up at the top but you come over the highest saddle and here's the view you get of Las Vegas it's spectacular everything laid out in front of you just breathtaking of course it's breathtaking because you're going up at a 30% grade and you all of a sudden there it is on the other side, the cliff down the front. Fortunately, we caught it in time, went over there, went to where those towers were, went shooting, had a good time, but then we decided to, okay, we've had enough time to go back. And and what I'd noticed were on those switchbacks, they were so tight and so steep, I had to pull my truck forward and back, forward and back, kind of like a three-point turn, only it wound up being a five-point turn. It took forever. It was really annoying. So I thought to myself, you know, that first turn's kind of wide. I bet I can make it just on a big pivot without doing the forward, back, forward, back, forward, back. That was not a good decision. Because I assumed it was flat. What I didn't realize, it was tilted like this towards the city of Las Vegas. And by doing that on a wide sweep, I wasn't just turning on my wheel. The whole weight of the car was shifting and sliding down the gravel. And now here's the picture here you'll see on the next slide at the top. This is what it looks like from the front. I don't know if we've got that next picture there. There, it's way up at the top. So you can see the road climbing all the way up there. It was so fun to go on the internet last night and find all these pictures. It's like, yeah, that's where it was. It was it, right up there on the top. So you got a cliff, almost like a cliff, down the front side. And it was so steep that as we came around and I swung around there, finally I realized, wait a second, this isn't good. Looked out my window and realized I'm looking at Las Vegas. There is no road below me. 
And so I immediately stopped, put down the clutch and the brake, looked over at the people in the truck, and they got out as quick as they could. They bailed out, and I prayed really hard, Lord Jesus, please help me. Put that truck in, put the gear into reverse, and I, that, that, you know, one-tenth of a second you have to take between getting the brake to the gas on a, on a manual transmission and pulling up on the clutch. I'm like, this has all got to happen really quick, Lord. You're going to help me on this. And all of a sudden, one, two, three, and put down, and expecting that I'm going to, like, either fall off the cliff or I'm going to go backwards, and boom, the wheel just spins. And they got something weird here. I look out the window, and there's the wheel spinning out in empty space. Scared to death. I had problems. I had problems. What was I going to do? And I, so I'm like, okay, one more time. Put it in reverse, and boom, that front wheel spins, and nothing else happens. And so I, I put on the brake, climb out the truck on the passenger side, get out, and we look, and there's a big rock on the front underneath my axle. And both of my wheels in the front are up in the air. It's four-wheel drive, but that doesn't do any good if your wheels are drifting in the mid-air. And it was just so much weight up there that we couldn't do anything off the back wheels either. And so we looked and we debated, what should we do? We thought about trying to push it. Problem was, there wasn't very much room to push. I mean, we tried it, but we just couldn't get it and thought, what are we going to do? And all of a sudden, this guy comes pushing his motorcycle up the hill. It was a dirt bike, but it was, the road was so steep, he couldn't even ride it up there. He gets there and says, man, I'm going back. You guys look like you're having problems. They go, yeah, we're having problems. And we could watch. The sun was just about to set behind Charleston Peak over on the other side of the valley. He goes, well, hey, is there somebody I can call for you? Again, this is ancient history. Yes, we used to not have these things. Anybody remember those days? I mean, so we're up there, and, and so we're stranded. And so I gave him my wife's phone number, told him, please call Kira at this number. And he said, tell her to meet me at the 7-Eleven, which you ever been to Las Vegas, there's a 7-Eleven on every quarter, but the 7-Eleven at Hollywood and Lake Mead. And so he, we didn't know what was going to happen, and we tried, and we pushed, and we did everything we could. And, man, we were scared to death, like, what are we going to do? And I said, okay. I don't know what to do. I have no idea. All I know is it's getting dark. If we don't get down this mountain, we're going to be in a world of hurt. So we started to climb down the front of that cliff. The next picture will show you kind of what we were going down. I mean, it was steep. It was treacherous going down there. You get down to the bottom of those valleys and the real crevasses of the canyons, and it's so steep. You can tell whenever it rains, which isn't very often, when it rains in Las Vegas, it's floods everywhere. There's these like waterfall areas, and we're trying to go down there. Well, my friend was so scared he couldn't go down the waterfall thing because it, it was steep, and it was like, you know, 10-foot drop to get down there. And, and, and so he, just, he was just panicked, and it's dark, and he's all, I'm just going to call That was for added effect, so you could feel what it was like that evening there. Well, one day, uh, sometime soon, the microphone will come back on. In the meantime, can you hear me in the back? Yeah? Okay, I'll speak loud. So we, uh, he, was he was just basically shuddered in fear and saying, please call search and rescue for me. I wasn't sure that was a good idea. But one of his friends committed to stay with him. The other went down with me, and we went to that 7-Eleven. We got there. I didn't see Kira, but I saw our church janitor, Jay. He happened to be there, and Kira had called him, and Kira was on her way, and she was going to make it as soon as she could. 
And oh, by the way, I forgot to mention this, she's seven months pregnant with her first child. So we get to 7-Eleven and Jay's there and he was all, oh, well, I got a four-wheel drive truck. I know, you know, after church tomorrow, we'll go up and I'll, I'll rescue you. Oh, okay, wonderful, that'd be great. And so Kira showed up, we go home, my friends go home that next day after church and go over to Jay's house, we go in his four-wheel drive pickup and we get out there back to that very first hill and he's spinning out, doesn't have enough power to even climb up the first hill. And he looks at me and goes, oh, I got a solution. Really? Yeah. My, ex, my wife's ex-husband, he's got a really good Jeep. I thought, your wife's ex-husband. Oh, yeah, we're really good friends. I go, well, that's good. Okay. But sure enough, he had one of those old school army type Jeeps, you know, no roof and all that stuff. And we went out there and sure enough, it was able to climb up. And we had the chain in the back. We climbed up the wicked steep part all the way to the top and we got up there. And there's not much room up there. Again, you're on that ledge that you saw on that cliff both sides. And so he tied the chain really close to the back of my truck. And he said, okay, Alan, you get in the front there and I'm, I want to put it on here. And when I'm going to give you the count to three, you gun it. You give it everything you got. We're going to back up together. And so we're ready and ready. One, two, and I'm anticipating. I'm anticipating the tug is going to get me off the rock or get down. This problem's over. Thank you, Jesus. It's going to happen. And then on three, instead of feeling a tug backward, I felt a slam from behind. About thought I was going to go back over the front of the mountain again. Well, thank God that rock was as big as it was because I was still stuck on there. But the only problem was now his Jeep was stuck under my truck. Turns out his uh, front differential had gone out with him. He no longer had four-wheel drive, and he spun and spun and spun, and we pushed and pushed and pushed, and we could not get his truck out. And the sun's starting to set. The next day, we're looking at each other going, what are we going to do? And one more time, 2,000 feet down the steep cliffs in the, you know, in the darkness of Las Vegas, we make it down, make the phone call, get rescued, and say, what are we going to do? I don't know. We got problems. So we made a commitment to just say, let's look, check this out. And, and Jay had said, you know, I heard of these people called four-wheel drive recovery service. I guess I'm not the only idiot in, in Nevada. And so I said, okay, let's call some of these places. And I called the guy the next day, found one in the phone book. And sure enough, he said, I'll see you out there Tuesday morning. So I took Tuesday off of work, went out there with Jay and his friend. And he showed up, and he had what looked like a cool truck. But he got to that very first hill, and just like Jay's pickup, couldn't climb it, could not even climb it. Like, what in the world are we going to do? We're stuck. I mean, that's my truck up there, and that's his Jeep up there. And so the guy we hired said, hey, I got a solution for you. Let's get four-wheel ATVs. We take two of them. We each ride two on those. We'll get up there, and then you guys can take the vehicles down. And I'm going to bring a handyman jack, because here's what you do. When you get a four-wheel drive stuck on something, these handyman jacks are really tall, and you crank, 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 crank this thing up. And what we'll do is we'll crank up your back bumper first, and that way we can scoot out his Jeep. But then I'll go around the front side, and I'm going to crank, 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 crank up your scout, and then we'll push it backward, and that'll set it free. You'll get it off the rock. And we're like... Okay, I guess. I don't know what else we're going to do. We got to do something. So we get up there, and, and we're riding up there, and I'm riding on the back of Jay's ATV, and we're going there. And now the problem, ATVs are great, and they're designed to climb like anything. But they're designed for one person to climb anything, sitting in the middle. Well, to do this, there's not a second seat. I had to straddle behind him, get my feet, legs around him, sitting on the back part of that. Well, as we're getting closer and closer and closer, climbing this steep road, guess what happens? 
He hits a rock on the front tire. The rock's so big that it puts that thing up in the air. Well, the problem is my weight is on the back. It's off-weighted, and so I'm tipping this thing, and it's tipping backwards and backwards and backwards, and pretty soon I'm falling off the back onto the gravel road, and I see Jay and the the four-wheel ATV coming down on top of me, and my instinctive reaction is to crunch up. It was terrible, but I I know. It works if you got a 50-pound bag of something landing on you, but not when you got 400 pounds of something landing on top of you. And all of a sudden, my back went, folded up like a piece of paper. There I was. And now our problems went from one to two to three. There I am in pain, laying by the side of the road. And then the ATV's going back down the steep hill. Jay runs after it. He gets it. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? And so they're like, well, I don't know. Well, let's just go. Let's do what we can. We made it this far. We're not going to turn around now. And I'm like, yeah, let's go do it. And I'm just kind of trying hard not to cry, trying to be the manly man up there. And I'm sitting by the side of the road. But you know what? It worked. They used the handyman, jacked up my back bumper, freed up the Jeep. They went again and then then did the handyman jack up the front and had to kick my truck a couple of times. But after a couple of times, got it off there, got it off the rock, and we were able to load one of the ATVs in the back. And my poor seven months pregnant wife saw me show up with my truck driven by Jay with me saying, hey, babe, would you like to go to the hospital? (laughs) But thank God to this day, we're still here. We made it. And some, we survived the problems. And, you know, but some of your problems, you don't survive, literally. And some of you here tonight have some problems. you got some challenges. And there are problems. There are times that God works miracles and God is glorified and we see the supernatural healing. You see that miracle provision of finances. You see something happen that there is no other explanation for except that God intervened. But there are times that you have a problem and you work hard and you get it figured out and or somebody else does things for you. And there are times when you got a problem that there seems to be no solution and it's absolutely overwhelming. Well, tonight I want us to take a look at a passage of Scripture. It talks about four guys who had a problem probably beyond anything you and I can ever imagine. And, but what I think that they dealt with in their problem and how they overcame their problem is going to be a key for some of you tonight. In fact, as I was praying over this this afternoon, I was really touched by the Holy Spirit. And I know there is something special about Sunday nights because people of faith show up on Sunday nights. But it may be that you're here for another reason. Maybe you couldn't come on Sunday morning or maybe you were dragged against your will by a family member or something. Whatever the case is, I believe that God has a word for many of us here tonight. And the problems that you face, you may not see a solution for. You may feel stuck. You may wonder if there's a way out. I believe that God has a way out. But it may not be the way that you were thinking. So would you pray with me? Holy Father, I praise you. I thank you, Lord, that you were God that day, that four days back in Las Vegas, and we were able to make it. And, Lord, that we have seen you do miracle after miracle. And Lord, we also seen you work in ways that are far more subtle than that. And it's my prayer that tonight, Lord, your spirit would just speak to those who are here. You would speak to us through your word that we would be clear in understanding what you would have for us. We invite you, Lord. Have your way in Jesus' name. Amen. 2 Kings chapter 7, verse 3. Now there were four men who were lepers at the entrance to the gate. Those four guys had problems. 
But we know from this passage their number one problem is they were lepers. And leprosy itself, known as Hansen's disease, has been a horrible disease. And it obviously was a contagious disease. But it was something that caused skin to have horrible conditions. You can see some photographs here of what leprosy was like, the kind of things that it does. And it actually causes physical pain for a while until eventually the pain goes away and people do things that actually cause their pain. I heard a story of one person who went to a leper colony and there was a key that was stuck in the door and the, and the man wasn't able to open it. The man with leprosy came up and said, that's okay, I'll do it for you. And he went and he put his hand on it and he twisted and turned it until the key actually ripped off some of his skin. It was a horrible disease. And so it accompanied all those problems, all the things that came with it, with the complications of the disease itself. But probably worse than the physical aspects were the social aspects. Because it was seen as an infectious disease, these people had to be quarantined away from society so that no one else would get the disease. In Leviticus, in the the Mosaic Law, 1345-46, the law says, The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose, and he shall cover his upper lift and cry out, Unclean! Unclean! He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. I know if any of you were like I was when I was younger, I always dealt with just horrible insecurity and got harassed and teased for one thing or another. We'd do terrible things to each other. I'm not going to make you raise your hand. But maybe you know what it was like to be ostracized by the in-group. Some of you know what it's like to be ostracized by the out-group. You know, being cut off and being in that place of loneliness. And God has created us for connection. That's why these small groups that Jeff talked about were so important. In fact, Jeff announced the need for group leaders this morning at Lakeside. And, and, you know, this is a busy season for me as dean. And our school's growing rapidly. We're doing all kinds of extra stuff. We weren't planning to lead a group again. We've done it for three years. And uh, it was interim pastoring last year, so was not able to do it. But Kira and I looked at each other and like, okay, we better do this again. Because there's something that happens when you get together with people. But when you're isolated, when you're alone, Not only that, but you have to yell, unclean, unclean, get away, get away. Can you imagine the loneliness and the pain and the agony that came with that? Not only the physical, but that. And then to complicate things, look at where they were. They're in the city of Samaria. And if we go back to chapter 6, verse 24, we see they were in a city under siege. It says afterward, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria. Your Bible may say Aram. Syria is a modern-day language for it. It is Syria. Damascus still the capital, but the Arameans, the Syrians, some translations have gone with the modern language. The king of Aram mustered his entire army and went up and besieged Samaria. And if you study history, you know that throughout most of human history, wars were typically either fought in the open field of combat. That was a glorious way to do it. But when you couldn't win that way or you're getting defeated, usually the ones who are at risk of losing would go back and they would run into a fortress or a city, a walled city, and they could hide there and wait out and hope that the, uh, the advancing army would go away and leave them alone. And that would look if your enemies did give up. It took a long time. But like we see, 586 B.C. in the the book of Lamentations, when King Nebuchadnezzar went and surrounded the city of Jerusalem, laid siege to it. Or or the one that Jesus prophesied in Matthew 25, 24 and 25, took place in Jerusalem, 67 to 70 A.D. It is horrible. 
It's, it's a horrible long-term process of gradual starvation because the enemy surrounds the city and you can only live on what you have inside the city. And so to complicate things for the city of Samaria, they were under a famine. It said in verse 25, there was a great famine in Samaria. So that meant that they were not able to harvest the normal amount of wheat and store it there inside the city. They were not ready. And as month after month dragged on, all the food was eaten. The people were hungry. Things were horrible. And it said a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver. That's about $400. And no, this isn't to go and mount it on the wall as if you just, you know, got some sort of big game. The idea was I want to even eat a donkey brain or eyeball because I got to have something to eat. I'm willing to pay whatever I can. If that's not bad enough, a fourth part of a cab of doves dung for five shekels of silver. Like about $25 for a little bit of dove boo, just to hope that I can get something to live on. Now as the king of Israel is passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him saying, help my lord, O king. And he said, if the Lord will not help you, how shall I help you? From the threshing floor or from the wine press? And the king asked her, what is your trouble? She answered, this woman said to me, give me your son that we may eat him today and we'll eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and ate him. Can you imagine the depth of starvation that would lead people to do that? And on the next day, I said to her, give us your son that we made him, but she has hidden her son. That's a horrible situation. And that's going on inside the city. And these four lepers, they were Israelites. So what that meant was they were totally dependent upon the generosity of the people inside the city. They didn't go out and make their own money. They didn't have jobs. It was totally dependent on the people inside. So the people inside the city are starving. They've been starving a lot longer. And that's a horrible situation. And there seemed to be no way out. There seemed to be no opportunity for victory for them. But if we go back over to chapter 7, verse 3. They started doing something that most people do when you're in a tough situation. The decision scientists call it narrow framing. You may call it either or thinking. And when you're in the midst of a real tough situation, maybe you call it a dilemma. That is a, that is a challenging problem or question for which there's no clear best answer. We typically look at either A or B, either red or blue. Either this or that. And neither of them are good options. You ever been there before? Yeah, you know what that's like. Sometimes it's like neither of these are good situations. But the problem is there may be a better situ solution, but we can't see it because we're too framed narrowly. And so we see in chapter 3, it's probably a conversation that those lepers had had every single day for the last 18 months or very long that they'd been under siege. I can just see them there. They're just out there. Oh, man, I'm so hungry. Yeah, I'm hungry too. Oh, man, I'm hungry. My stomach's just eating itself out. Yeah, what are we going to do? I don't know. It's horrible here. Yeah, but what else are we going to do? I don't know. We can go inside the city, you know? Sometimes they may have some food in there. No, we can't go in the city. We're lepers. We're not allowed to go in there. Yeah, but there's no food here. Yeah, but there's no food there either. What are we going to do? I don't know. And they probably said that over and over and over again until they got hungry and hungry hungry and hungry and realized 
that before too long, they're going to be so hungry, they're eventually going to die of starvation. And that's in essence what they're saying there in chapter, chapter, chapter 7, verse 3. It said, why are we sitting here until we die? If we say, let us enter the city, the famine is in the city and we shall die there. And if we sit here, we die also. But they decided to do something different this time. They were willing to think more broadly than they'd ever thought before. They were willing to come up with a crazy idea. So now, come, let us go over to the camp of the Syrians. If they spare our lives, we shall live. And if they kill us, we shall but die. That was something they'd never been willing to think about before because it didn't make any sense. Why go to the enemy? They're going to kill us. But it hit them. Yeah, they probably will kill us. But if we stay here, we die. We go in the city, we die. We don't have any other options. Let's try it. Maybe they'll let us live. Maybe there's a remote chance they'll give us a scrap of food or something. We'll be able to live. Anybody ever been a part of doing brainstorming before? It's where you get a group of people together and you've got a problem, a situation, maybe you're doing some planning, and you come up with ideas. You get a dry erase board or sticky notes and you put them up there and you let people dream up. And I've done this dozens of times, a lot of different organizations. And there's always somebody there who has a crazy idea and they're afraid to speak up. And I'm like, oh, we could, oh, no, no, I don't want to say it. And, and I'm always like, what? Wait, wait a second, why do you want to say it? Well, it's just stupid. You know how many times the person who goes ahead and says that idea up there yeah yeah it's a ridiculous idea we can't do that idea but by even being willing to consider that idea everybody's mind goes over the other direction we can't do that but we could do this we could do that we might be able to do that and somebody really says yeah and if we do that all of a sudden well maybe that'll work and 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 that becomes the solution that leads to the breakthrough and the victory that nobody was being willing to consider before So I don't know what you might be struggling with in your life, what problems or challenges you might be facing. But be willing to dream a little bit more. Don't be afraid to get crazy. Go out beyond there. I pastored north of Seattle, a wonderful church for eight and a half years, and we saw growth happen immediately, and it grew. We had a little tiny building, and we added a second service, and that one got full. We added a third service, and, and we were just knew that there was something going to happen, felt led to purchase a piece of property. The problem was to build the church we needed to build, we needed to be a bigger congregation to be able to have the money for it. So we went multi-site, went to a school in town, but in Washington State is not as pro-church, not anywhere near pro-church like Florida. And the school wouldn't let us go back there again. And we were challenged. Well, the Lord eventually led me to begin teaching full-time, and my successor had a challenging first few years, but eventually grew the church, ran into that same situation. And he had an opportunity to do something that sounded absolutely crazy. It was a motorcycle shop, decided to move into its own building, and it had a little place in the strip mall that was just big enough for the church. And he made the decision to move the congregation there about five years ago. And what seemed to be a crazy idea to a lot of people, he'd been praying, he talked to me about it for a couple of years, but he made the decision, and that church is today more than twice of what it was when I left it 10 years ago. Because it took doing something different. Yeah, it was different. 
But that can be the key to, to success. Maybe you're in a, in a tough marriage and instead of saying, what's my choice? Divorce my wife or put up with this, this uncomfortable marriage? Well, why not get counseling? Why not go to the marriage conference here in a couple weeks? Why not change some of your own behavior? Maybe that would help the marriage somewhat there. We can have some things. So make a decision to think more broadly. But then you have to choose to act. Act in faith rather than sitting in fear. Verse 5, so they arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. But when they came to the edge of the camp of the Syrians, behold, there was no one there. For the Lord had made the army of the Syrians hear the sound of chariots and of horses, the sound of a great army, so that they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the king of the Hittites and the kings of Egypt to come against us. So they fled away in twilight and abandoned their tents and their horses and their donkeys, leaving the camp as it was, and fled for their lives." And when these lepers came to the edge of the camp, they went into the tent and ate and drank, and they carried off silver and gold and clothing and went and hid them. They came back and entered another tent and carried off things from it and went and hid them. And in a moment of time, they went from being the poorest people in the world to suddenly the richest people in their community. They had all the food, everything that they could imagine. But can you imagine that point in time they made the decision, okay, let's do it. And they're like, "Uh, those are the enemies, man, they're going to kill us. It took some courage to do that. I remember being a kid trying to dive off the diving board the first time. You guys remember that? I mean, something like that. It's like, okay, scary. And you're going to do something new. It's going to take a risk. But you're never going to see the outcome unless you do. A lot of researchers have discovered that most people are risk averse. That is, we're so afraid of taking a risk. We're not willing to spend $10 on an investment with a 50% likelihood to yield $100. I'm afraid, more afraid about losing the $10 than about a 50% possibility of getting back 100 But we have to act if we're going to see the outcome. But what I love about this story is notice, is there any direction from God to those guys? Do they get any angel vegetations, any dreams, any visions? No. They made their own mind up. They made to them what seemed to be a decision, a crazy decision, but it was all they had. Yet what do we see from this passage? God was already at work before they even chose to act. Look back at verse 1. It says that Elisha said, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, Tomorrow this time a sea of fine flour, in other words, like six gallons of flour, shall be sold for a shekel, for about five bucks, what it should cost, and two seas of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. In other words, we're not going to be in starvation anymore. Tomorrow, Elisha made that prophecy, not even thinking about the lepers at the gate. The lepers didn't even know about it, yet God was working before they chose to act. What seemed to them to be a natural decision wound up being a supernatural victory that God was working for them and I believe there's some of you here tonight you're going to make a choice to act you're going to choose to do something beyond what you've thought before and as you act in faith God is going to bless you and God is going to open the doors God is going to bring some victory for you beyond what you can possibly imagine and then the question will be what will you do with it look back in chapter 7 verse 9 They said to one another, we are not doing right. This day is a day of good news. If we are silent and wait until the morning light, the punishment will overtake us. Now therefore come, let us go and tell the king's household. See, they could have kept all the food, all the gold, all the money, all the possessions. 
but they were prompted with a conviction. God didn't just give them the victory. They thought about all of their family members, all the people of their nation who were stuck inside the city still starving and the victory lay outside the walls for them. And so they chose to take victory for them personally and share it with others, even those who had been treating them, who had been ostracizing them and kicking them out. And so they made the decision, verse 10, they came to the gatekeepers of the city and told them, we came to the camp of the Syrians and behold, there was no one to be seen or heard there, nothing but the horses tied and the donkeys tied and the tents as they were. And verse 16 said that the people went out and plundered the camp of the Syrians. So a sea of fine flour was sold for a shekel and two seahs of barley for a shekel according to the word of the Lord. They shared their victory. And I don't know what it will be, and it may be some of you have experienced that kind of a victory, a financial blessing you didn't expect, maybe an inheritance. You have an opportunity to bless others. And aren't you glad to be a part of a church that does so much for so many? An unbelievable number of ministries have been launched by Victory that are making a difference in people's lives. Zoe's Journey, Dream Center, on and on, the Kids Club, and the missionaries that we support, one of the, the leading missionaries giving churches in the Assemblies of God and really the true missions leading organization around the world today. And your giving helps do that. But it's more than finances. The way you give from your victory may be doing something to help someone else. It may be sharing your time, your energy, your talent. It may even be sharing your faith with someone around you. You've seen what God's done for you. Tell someone else. But as the worship team comes back to the platform, I just invite you to just reflect on whatever your problem that you may be facing and the challenges you may be facing would be. Now, I have the privilege of serving at Southeastern University. Just a little over five years ago, Kira and I came here from Washington State. And it's an incredible place. I pinch myself every day. I walk across the campus. Lord, why, I, I don't know what I ever did. I, I do not deserve this. But you know, Southeastern was started in 1935 as a, a Bible institute, moved to Lakeland in 1950, and it floated about 1,800 to 1,000 students for about 30 years until 1999. And the board took a risk. They went after somebody who had never taught before. Before, usually it was typically, yeah, you look for some sort of an educator. They went after a pastor, pastoring North Orlando. They brought in Dr. Mark Rutland. And he came into a situation and he saw, we can't keep doing what we've always done. Because they'll say, you know, like they always say, you do what you always done, you're going to get what you always got. Instead, we need to do something. We need to think more broadly. Let me tell you, it was not a positive time. Because what he was asking people to do did not make sense for some of them. He chose to shut down some problems so that they could get some money. He chose to borrow some money to put a facelift on, on a campus that was dealing with deferred maintenance. He chose to go out and hire marketing people and enrollment people. But that decision led to some incredible growth, a tripling in size over the next seven years. No Assemblies of God school had ever be, reached that magic number of 3,000. And so when he left in 2009, everybody wondered who in the wonder world could replace Dr. Rutland. You probably a lot of you heard him preach, a phenomenal communicator, charismatic leader. And so the board of trustees at Southeastern went through a search process, had a tough, tough time, and a lot of indecision, a lot of people wanting one way, other people going another way, and it went on for two years. Enrollment dropped by 600 students. Financial stuff was tough. The morale was tough. 
In fact, they came to a point where they had reached a total impasse. Search committee could not decide on anyone. And our pastor, Pastor Wayne Blackburn, just said, hey, you know what? We need to restart this. We need to do a new committee, and we're going to do things differently. And he took the lead. And he went back to somebody they'd looked at before. Happened to be my boss at the time. He had the job I have here at Southeastern at our sister school, Northwest University, Dr. Ken Engel. Now, Ken didn't come in with the charisma of a Mark Rutland, although he's a charismatic communicator. He'd never led a church the size that Mark Rutland had. But Pastor Wayne and the search team saw somebody in him who had the ability to see beyond what is to what can be. Somebody had the ability to, to understand and look and understand. And Dr. Engel came in and took that school and began to apply some core principles, what he calls framework leadership and began to dream beyond what had happened, put a priority on innovation, and new programs have started, new things, new ideas, putting a priority on accessibility and affordability. And now this fall at 112 sites around the country, we have students who are learning. Now four doctoral degrees, more than 20 master's degrees, more than 60 undergraduate degrees. Total enrollment this year, the official numbers have yet to be released, but it will be well over 8,000 students. I don't know what your problem is tonight. I don't know what your challenge is. And it may be we're going to invite you forward. We're going to invite the prayer team to come forward. And we're going to pray and we're going to see miracles. And God does miracles. And sometimes all it takes is just a prayer to see the miracle happen. But some of those miracles require you to choose. And some of those miracles require you to act. So I'm going to invite you to stand to your feet. If you're here tonight and you would say, I've got a problem and it's too big and I don't know what to do. I need the Lord's help. If that's the case for you, would you raise your hand wherever you are? You're facing something. It can be physical. It can be financial. It can be career related. It can be relational. It can be something internal to you. It can be something beyond anything. The Lord sees your hands. And he's got the provision. Remember, we require you to step out and take a step of faith. And the first step I want to invite you to do is to come down to these altars as the team leads us in worship. So we have a team of people who are, who are here and anointed to pray and set apart and ready to just work on your behalf to take your needs to the Lord. And others of you, maybe you're here tonight and you've never yet come to the place of trusting in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And you want to do that. You want to know what it means to have your life secured, to, to, to be sure that you are in active, healthy relationship with God. If that's you tonight, would you raise your hand? Anyone here tonight at all? I'm going to pray. And as I pray, I'm going to invite those of you who've responded, one or the other of these invitations. You've got a situation in your life to begin to come forward. The worship team's going to lead us in one more song. We're going to take time to pray for these needs. And I want you to just be ready to respond that way and would you just come forward and Lord we love you we thank you Lord God that you are greater than we can imagine 
And I pray for every one of those needs that were lifted up, every hand, every problem, every situation. Lord, I pray, as we prayed earlier, Lord, you are the healer. You are able to heal, and I pray that you would. And Lord, those who are facing major dilemmas, Lord, I pray that you would guide as so many times you do guide. But Lord, you would help us to know and to act in courage. And Lord, would you restore relationships? Would you bring healing? Would you bring provision? Would you have your way in all of our lives, Lord, that we would exalt you in all we do in Jesus' name? Place and fill the atmosphere. 
Lord, we thank you for your presence tonight. And Lord, we do pray victory would come to every one of these needs. And Lord, that you would just bless and work through every single one of us, that we would share the victory you brought to us. Help us, Lord, this week to have an opportunity to share your good news with others, that people would come into king your kingdom and experience the victory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, God bless you. You're welcome to stay here and continue to pray at the altars you need, but pray that you'd have a wonderful week. Bless you in Jesus' name.